Hi, and welcome to Talk Rehab, a podcast talk show dedicated to seating and mobility and the people that make it happen. I'm Bill Nolting, and I'm back with part two of my conversation with Dr. Mark Schmieler from the Rehabilitation Services Department at the University of Pittsburgh. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend it. In any case, let's not waste any time. Let's jump right into part two with Dr. Mark Schmieler. And isn't that what you've been doing for years now, trying to uh, round up this value proposition, value statement, and prove it via data? Yeah, that's that's one of the big projects that we are working on here, and we're trying to get buy-in from everybody. A lot of healthcare services out there have what they call registries, and that's where pract- clinicians, providers, say, in another area of healthcare, like cancer, for instance, they share their patient data in a de-identified manner. You know, you know a little bit about the case without knowing the case for confidentiality reasons, but, you know, age diagnosis, type of cancer and type of treatment, for instance. Historically, research has been done on small controlled samples of people, which don't always result in outcomes that we're looking for because of just the nature of that kind of research. But now if you start looking at population statistics, so if you can have a a database registry of thousands and thousands of people who use wheelchairs and you know their date of birth, you know their their zip code, you know their diagnosis, you know the circumstances by which the equipment was provided, now you can start running population statistics. And that although has its drawbacks, just like census data, not everybody tells the truth, but when you're looking at thousands of people, you can start to see what best practices are, what trends work. And like I said, going back to say cancer, you know, you have a lot of oncologists working all over the country, around the world, trying to solve problems. But when they start pooling their data, kind of like these aha moments, okay, this is an obscure type of disease or condition, but I tried treatment A and large data analytics is now showing that that probably has the best outcome compared to say treatment B or C. And in many instances, that treatment that is the most effective isn't always the most expensive one either. And that's what I'm finding to be very interesting about large data analytics. We, we've provided healthcare services and we have paid for healthcare services in a fee-for-service model for 100 years without really looking at these outcomes. And it's really interesting to see that, for instance, the physical therapy field has shown that physical therapy intervention for, let's say, low back pain is way more effective, and when I say effective, cost and outcome compared to surgery. But we've always been happy to pay for the surgery. There's many reasons for that. It could be that the surgeons are just really good lobbyists, for one. Two, no one ever questions what the doctor said, and no one would ever imagine that physical therapy could actually be an effective treatment. But these are the things that ACOs are looking for now. So if we start looking at wheelchairs and we look at home accommodations and transportation and other social determinants of health, we may find out that what we do is actually more cost effective and preferred by people than going to a nursing home. How much data have you been able to collect and what can we do to get whoever needs to be compliant on board with this program? Yeah. So we've, we've just hit 5,000 cases, and those cases are what I call baselines. 
These are people that are coming in for a new wheelchair. They either had one or they're, and they're getting a new one or they never had one or they had one that didn't meet their needs. And so that's at 5,000 right now. And we probably have close to 2,000 who we've followed up on at least 90 days after their new wheelchair. What we're finding from this large data is nothing that we didn't already know based on common sense. And I think a lot of people don't want to participate in this. One is maybe they don't understand how healthcare is moving to sort of large data analytics, for one. Two, it, it adds another layer of something you have to do that day. Some people are afraid of outcomes because maybe they're just not comfortable with their practice and they'd rather just let sleeping dogs lie. Those issues are no different than any profession or field that has had to become accountable over the years. I mean, it's, it's everywhere now. When they started passing laws about teaching and schools being effective and no child left behind, every school district had to start doing standardized testing and no one wanted to do it because it wasn't fair, I don't have time, and I am in one of the most impoverished school districts in the country, so therefore my scores are gonna be lower than national averages, and therefore I'm going to be uh, penalized for that. I mean, there's when we had to start doing this in, in rehab in the 1980s with the functional independence measure, there was resistance to doing it because we all think that what we do is unique and special. And in many instances, what we a lot of what we do is unique and special, but at the end of the day, there's got to be some common ground that we measure the same thing. So even if your scores are lower, it doesn't mean you're a bad provider. It just means we need to carefully look at why your scores are lower. And it may be that you are in a economically underserved region. It may be that there are other forces driving those scores down. And those are things that we need to look at collectively to you know, say, hey, maybe you need more ATPs in this region, or maybe in a rural health environment, if we're seeing lower scores, we need to get policymakers to push for better strategies like telehealth, for instance, instead of saying we're not going to pay for that. I mean, there, there's ways that we can show areas of effectiveness, areas of improvement, and it's not really to single people out. It's If anything, we've seen nothing in this data so far that shows that anybody's doing a bad job. It's actually just confirming that everybody is doing a really good job with the resources they have. And we probably need to make that a standard across all equipment. Well, that's good news. You know, I'm, I'm a big advocate that we should have ATPs all over the country doing what they do and providing a value to a health system or a payer. And I think that opportunity is sitting right there for us right now, especially with this next, I call it sort of the next generation of aging. It's, it's not the it's not the, uh, the America's greatest generation post-World War II who were the, kind of like the first beneficiaries of Medicare that are well into their 90s now. It's, it's the Woodstock mm -hmm. baby boomer aging population. Now, that group has already proven themselves to be pretty outspoken. Okay, They're a population, you know, my, my parents are in there. They will not accept status quo. They, they don't trust the government like the previous generation did. And 
by God, they will do anything they possibly can to never, ever have to be in a nursing home. They want to age in place. Yep. They want to age in place. And in many instances, they, they have resources to do that. And so that's where we should be. And, and the other thing, too, they're used to being on managed care plans. So my grandparents, long gone now, but, you know, they, they wouldn't think twice about signing up for a managed care plan. Like they, they, uh, they're the generation that fought for Medicare and now they have it. They're not letting it go. Even though on many occasions I've, I've pointed out where Medicare has its flaws and you should, you know, I do that with my own patients. Actually, it's like, you really should just get rid of your Medicare and go on one of these accountable care plans that is responsible. You'll, you'll be able to get the cushion you actually need or the chair you actually need. But I just say in those systems, there's going to be a lot of accountability and we're going to need outcome measures. It's going to be expected. Outcome measures with wheelchairs, since wheelchairs are pretty much hardware. And since there's a lot of technology already built into a wheelchair, can't we take the objectivity out or the subjectivity out of the hands of the ATP and build it in as telemetry product yep. into the wheelchair. Yep. No, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I'm with you right there. I don't think we take the ATP out though, because the ATP has got to be the one receiving data, analyzing it from in a business model to know what to do. I mean, a perfect example of it's not necessarily telemetry, but labor tracker. Labor tracker is is a, a system that was created a few years ago and. Now it's gone to like a little bit of a computer-based system, like an app where a, a, a repair tech or an ATP can log a repair for, it was really designed for claims submission. Well, all that data is coming to my group here at Pitt, and we are looking at 17,000 repair tickets and trying to run some analytics on it. So that's where I... Is that Richard Richard Fuller's deal? Is that what... Yeah, yeah, yeah. God bless his soul. He, he created a wonderful thing. So yeah, Dick Fuller's, yeah. Um, and I know Doug Westerdahl had a lot to bringing it. And I think VGM has uh, has introduced it to a lot of their members. And I'm, I'm sure all the others are have, have something similar. But when we can amass large data like that, now we can start to say, hey, you know, we're not, we're not, hey, insurance payer or ACO, we're not pulling your leg. When someone needs new casters every six months, it's it's right here in the large data. Now, take that a step further is instrumenting the wheelchair. Now, with power wheelchairs and the connected chair, that that opportunity is here today. Mm-hmm. We just we got to embrace it. Pulling analytics right off the chair is 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 just another thing we can do. A lot of the large data that we're collecting right now, unfortunately, is being done the old-fashioned way. We have to kind of go with you know what's I don't want to call it the least common denominator, but we know everybody still has paper and a pen. We are shifting this to integrate with a, a electronic resources such as the electronic health record, business software, so that the process is even less onerous. It, it's, it's, it's kind of like automatic data extraction. Um, health systems are doing that now as physicians and clinicians are documenting in an electronic health record system there's there's some robot in the background pulling that data and and analyzing it to predict things and figure out so a lot of it is quality assurance for instance and a lot of it too is going in for like analytics to see what treatments really do work and don't work so it's basically what the adage now is what treatment works best for what person under what circumstances and where 
you know, mm-hmm. the best treatment at the right time in the right place, kind of a lot of people, that's their tagline for signing up for our health system. But we could do the same thing with wheelchairs. So, you know, we're driven by ICD-10 codes by Medicare, which really doesn't say much from a functional perspective. So we should be able to take large data and pair up some variables and predict or say that a person with this, not just diagnosis, but this age living in this environment, doing these things under these circumstances would be best suited with these categories of wheelchairs and not just, okay, this person weighs 320 pounds and has this diagnosis. So they'll get a a group two captain seat. That doesn't tell the whole story, but Medicare has come up with that scheme because we haven't offered an alternative. You know, we haven't come up with a sort of functional index or protocol for the the provision of a mobility device. Are we close? Uh, well, <laughs> I'd, I'd like to be closer, and I, I would I would like to challenge myself and my colleagues, including clinicians and suppliers, is can we come up with a universal process for how we do this stuff? We've all evolved kind of like this cottage industry of wheelchair clinics that maybe it's time that we can have some uniformity and maybe clean up a little bit or as I say, some business hygiene. Mm-hmm. And, and this is not to disparage any of us because I'm just as guilty here. I have my way of doing things. I've done it that way for 25 years and who's going to tell me to do it differently? But <laughs> is there some common ground, right? <laughs> is there some common ground we have and, and that would make it so much easier for external people to kind of know what to expect. Standardized processes are becoming a big part of healthcare now. That's, that's why you see a lot of non-physicians uh, doing things that only physicians did in the past because it's, it, I'm not saying it's a recipe, but it's, it's a protocol that you follow. You know, you do this, then you do this. And there's some uniformity to how it's documented. So if I'm if I'm going in for a procedure to uh, I don't know have an ab- appendectomy here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, I'm sure the procedure is going to be almost identical on the other side of the state at the University of Pennsylvania. Or if I'm going even to a community hospital, there should be some protocols that are pretty standardized. One would hope. One would hope. It doesn't mean that everybody gets the same protocol is just, it's a starting point. And to what extent do you think a separate benefit category is going to help this compliance move forward? Well, in order to have a separate benefit category, you obviously have to have a separate benefit. And with that separate benefit comes kind of a, a, some processes, some procedures, some definitions, some protocols, some standards of practice, right? Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think we have a lot of those ingredients some are more developed than others. I mean, the one ingredient is the ATP. That's pretty standardized across the country. It's the same test. It's the same things you have to learn. I think that the way we document both suppliers, clinicians, manufacturers, order forms still needs a lot of a lot of work as far as standardization. But you're right. The separate benefit category is really an important step here, similar to what orthotics and prosthetics has done. And, you know, we can learn from orthotics and prosthetics. They've had a separate benefit category for a lot longer 
and there's certain things that they did that helped them get there. One, they, they, they didn't have a lot of waste, fraud, and abuse going on, at least back then they did. No, no wheeler dealer? No wheeler dealer, although the <laughs> since wheeler dealer got shut down, you see a lot of late night advertising for back braces, so and knee braces. Right. But those are those are not certified ortho, orthotics prosthetics people doing it. So but you know, O and P did a really good job of aligning themselves with the rest of healthcare, specifically the surgeons. A surgeon has the the unfortunate job of removing someone's limb. And then it's all good because here's the prosthetist that's going to give you uh, uh, an artificial limb. So the the surgeons really supported the O&P profession, probably because they, they depend on them. Now, if we look at it from our perspective, say spinal cord injury, yeah, we heavily depend on our ATP suppliers because we need to put someone in a, in a device if they're not going to walk again. But the evolution of professions is pretty well documented. O&P started as a profession, oh God, since the Civil War, right? Complex rehab, really the term complex rehab has only been around for 10 years, maybe a little bit more. O&P was a, a, a father-son or father-daughter profession. It, it didn't have a, a, a very specific curriculum, university associated with it. That evolved now. Fast forward, to be an orthotist prosthetist, you have to have a master's degree. It's not to say that if you didn't, if, if you were trained 30 years ago, you have to retire now. It's just that from this point moving forward, this is what the standard is going to be. Everybody else stays in the profession, and, and, and many of them actually have to be instructors because we have to train the next generation. So I always try to tell my colleagues that, you know, if you just barely made it out of high school like I did, um, don't worry, you're, you're still respected. But if we want this industry to move forward, we're going to have to put some, some more definition around it. And that curriculum post high school education is a big part of it. And we need to do it in phases. Well, my neighbor knows, knows what a surgeon is, but my neighbor does not know what an ATP is. Right. I think I could say the same, not only for my neighbors, but my own family. So uh, <laughs> they still ask me now, well, what is it that you do for a living, Mark? We don't quite understand that. And it's like, I put people in wheelchairs. Oh my God, how horrible. Why would you do something like that? You must be the meanest person out there. But when people need our services, then it's quite obvious. I had two med students yesterday that were assigned to work with me. And you could just tell by looking at them when they first showed up, like, really? Do I really need to be here? I have not slept all night because I've been on call and now I have to sit in a freaking wheelchair clinic. But I have to, I'm proud of myself that by the end of the morning, they were in awe of what we did. Oh, that's great. Yeah. But they, but again, these are 20 something year old kids coming in that want to be doctors and not understanding this. And they even brought it up to me. They said, you know, we are being trained in some of this stuff in our classes now about keeping people in the community, providing care where it's needed and making sure people are healthy and being preventative. You know, we're getting there. We're getting there. And I think, you know, it didn't take them long to figure out that the wheelchair clinic really was serving a very important, unique need for a very kind of like small proportion of the population. But this small proportion of the population is, is what 
is costing us the most to take care of. And there are so many little things we can do to mitigate that cost and, and, and let them be where they want to be. I always say it's, it's not their fault that they have cerebral palsy or multiple sclerosis. They didn't ask for it. All they're asking for is some reasonable accommodations some decent equipment so that they, they can get on with their lives. But unfortunately, we've because of Wheeler Dealer and everything, we're still in this quandary of punishment to, to try and get a wheelchair. And we've got to really move out of that. And I don't think Medicare and changing Medicare is, is going to be the solution. It's almost an impossible task. I think we need to focus our attention now on the accountable care organizations and showing them the value that we bring to the table. But we have to have our outcomes and our research to demonstrate that we can't just live in the past where you, you know you have to trust me i provide good service i don't need any report cards or outcome measures because i i just know that i'm good at what i do now they want to see your report cards they want to see your research i just think we've got a a, a very good outlook for this this industry although you know there's a lot of people that probably feel otherwise but if we look at you know who who would be purchasing our services, that's going to shift. We still have a lot of people that are on Medicare, Medicaid, but the, the, there is a transition to managed care plans. Uh, I know historically managed care plans haven't been accountable. I'm hoping that that will also change and become more accountable. So we'll be able to do some cool things there, do things that we've always wanted to do, but it was just never paid for like home mods and transportation and other assistive technologies. The innovation is wide open in this field. I think the connected chair is just one example of future things that need to happen. I think uh, there'll be less resistance moving forward as far as innovating. I can certainly appreciate that innovation hasn't been as quick as it could have been because of we've all kind of fell victim to Medicare coverage policies. But it's going to change, and we've got a we've got an aging population of baby boomers that are going to want this stuff, and uh, we're going to have to be ready to do it. So, reaching right now, I think the big is is reaching out to the consumer themselves. I think we're seeing that with home mods, with the baby boomers and the baby boomers' parents, for that matter. The other part is is these managed care organizations. I I know it's not perfect right now, and it probably varies from region to region. I guess I'm lucky that I work in a maybe a, a region that's a little more innovative, but it we're learning that it makes sense to provide people with services to stay at home and get their care at home. That's one of the big driving forces behind trying to control the high skyrocketing cost of healthcare. So I, I just think we're we got a lot of a lot of work to do. And if we if we really want to be the lead in this, we got to show up with our report cards, with our outcomes, showing that what we do works. And the only way we can get that is if everybody's willing to contribute to this. It's always easy to sit back, ah, oh, let someone else do that. This is a situation where I think we really need everybody to participate. The registry we have, I mean, it's it's something I developed over the years. It's not anywhere near perfect, but it, at least it's something to get started. We can always build on it and adjust it as, as we go.
So that's that's my kind of pitch for uh, who we are and what we're doing. And I, like I said, I still love this stuff. It's really cool. And I want, I think we need to start reaching out to the next generation to say, look, not a perfect industry right now, but man, this is fun stuff. You get up every morning and you solve problems with cool equipment, and technology, and people are happy. Yeah. What more could you ask for? I know I'm, I'm always a half glass full guy, but I'm not, I'm not giving up and I'm going to be around for a few more years as, as long as they let me. I'm happy to work with anybody that wants to work towards this goal. Well, Mark, this was great. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And as a final comment, you know who I think does a great job at accountability and at taking care of their patients or members is Kaiser Permanente in California. Yes, absolutely. Maybe you could join me on a phone call with them sometime soon. Yep. Yeah, we're actually uh, we 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 look at Kaiser as kind of the uh, the forecast. What's Kaiser doing? And you're, you're absolutely correct. That probably stands out as probably the biggest best ACO in the country. And uh, we certainly want to be like them uh, here in Pittsburgh, and I'm sure all the other ACOs are like that. They have expressed a, an interest in the work that I'm doing with outcomes. So hopefully. Uh, we'll see more of more of that, more more momentum with them. Okay, very cool. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Mark. I'll talk to you soon, I hope. All right. Have a good one. You too. Bye. Dr. Schmeler has a refreshing optimism and realism that's totally contagious, to me anyway. Very upbeat. He's a guy who is really doing something to make the future better for everybody that needs seating and mobility and really for everybody that's providing seating and mobility. Mark, thank you so much for your time today. And for all you listeners out in podcast land, don't forget to listen to part one. Well, that's all. Come back for more episodes where all we do is talk rehab. I'm Bill Nolting. See you soon. Bye.